Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad that you're here this morning and uh, sharing once again. And thank you, Micah, for uh, Blessed Assurance. That's, that's my favorite hymn, and I have to share with you the reason why is they sang it the night that I was baptized. I was a nine-year-old, First Baptist Church in Homestead, Florida. And I can still remember it. I, I was saved before a revival time. We went through a revival, and they waited for me to be baptized for those who would be going to make decisions during revival time. So uh, there was a bunch of us that night, and, but I still remember that song. And a blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Been my favorite ever since. So thank you for singing at church, and what a wonderful song it is. Well, we're going to begin a, a series, a, a new series here for the next uh, four Sundays. And we're going to be talking about God's blueprint for family relationships. Now, today we're going to talk about, the, about Christian marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about Christian family. Then we're going to talk about Christian men. And um, then, and not to leave you ladies out, but Mother's Day is past, all right? So on Father's Day, I want to hit... Well, the iron is hot, all right, with the men. And uh, then the last Sunday, we'll talk about Christian parenting. And so all the way through this series, I hope you'll be praying for it, praying for me as I share it. And your ears will spiritually be open. Your eyes, spiritual eyes will be open to some of God's truth. And for some of us, it's just going to be a reminder uh, of God's word and what it has to say for others. It may be something new uh, for you. And if nothing else, maybe it will help you in sharing with someone else, maybe a son or a daughter or some, uh, some of your children, grandchildren, sharing with them the principles of God's word, the blueprint, because God's word is our blueprint, is our manual, and so there's a guide there for us, including for family relationships. So today we're going to talk about Christian marriage. Now, I have performed 342 weddings, and uh, I'll do another one. In fact, uh, four weeks from yesterday, I'll do my 343rd. You say, well, how do you know all the, how, how, how do you know the number? Well, my mama gave me a pastor's um, ministry record book when uh, I came out of seminary, and it had places for all of that, and I've just kept a record uh, of every baptism, every person that's joined the church, and uh, also all the funerals, and then as well as all the marriages that I have done. And it, uh, so far, it's 342. I double-checked this week as I was preparing for this message, uh, that number of uh, weddings. Now, I've had some funny, funny instances. I know we have not only our young ministers with us, we have others. Uh, Brother Guy being on the church staff, I'm sure you and, and Deb have seen a lot of funny things and rehearsals and weddings themselves and, um, and some other ministers that may be here. And, and there are a lot of funny things. Let me just share just a few of, of what I think, at least for me, uh, some that I've been a part of that have been hilarious and been funny for, as far as I'm concerned. One of them had to do when right up here in Chilton County, I don't know if you know, there are two enterprises in the state of Alabama. Now, we lived in one there in Coffee County, but I was invited to do a, a wedding uh, up in uh, Enterprise, a young man out of our church, a young lady there. And so we went up there on Friday night for the rehearsal, and, and everything was fine. But many of you know that in weddings, usually the minister and the uh, bridegroom, come, they come out of the side door like you have here. And if the groomsmen are coming or whether they're coming down the aisle or coming out, usually we come out of that, that door that's to your right or my left. Well, this church didn't have a hallway in the back, so it was a closet. All right? <laughs> So it was a five o'clock wedding at 4.30. The groom and I, we went and hid in the closet. <laughs> now, the, the night before, we had practiced, and I knew, because I'd, I'd been enough weddings, all right, I knew the song 
that I was supposed to come out on, that I was supposed to lead him out. And so I knew the song. We're in there, and it gets close to 5 o'clock, and it's 5 o'clock, and it's a minute after 5, 2, 3, 4, 5 minutes. They hadn't played the song yet. Finally, the director came and said, why are you waiting? I said, you're not playing the song. Oh, I forgot to tell you, we changed the song. <laughs> and, you know, so here we come out like dummies. You know, we come out, and finally we have the wedding. But that's what happened. Another time, I, it was my first home wedding. I'd only done probably five or six weddings before that uh, in Gulf Breeze, where I served as an associate, and then at my new position as pastor in Enterprise at Hillcrest. So it was my first home wedding, and we were in a basement, all right? I grew up in South Florida, Central Florida. You didn't have basements, all right? We had basement. It was like a playroom, and it was very, very small, and and everybody was really close coming down the steps. They had so so many family members, and I'm backed into this corner, and here is an older man, older woman. They were widow, widower, and and they're right here. I mean, they're really right almost in my face. And I've I'm, I'm got my Bible and got all my notes. And I'm going along and I'm talking uh, uh, about Charles and Jeanette, Charles and Jeanette. And all of a sudden, the wife, after the second time I called her name, she says, that's not my name. <laughs> and from that time on, I wrote everybody's name down on my wedding ceremonies. All right? Everyone. But I just called her by the wrong name. Now, fortunately, they still joined the church. And later on, I did her husband's funeral years later. They were an older couple. But that was just one of the more funnier things as far as I was concerned. I did a Saturday night wedding. And the next morning, we had baptism, just like you here in this service. Had a baptism in the, in the 830 service. I get up in the baptistry, and, and I don't normally raise my hand. For some reason, I raised my hand. I said, marriage is a holy estate, and so is baptism. I mean, I just thought I was still in the baptism mode the night before. And so I, 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 I caught myself real quick. I did confess it later on to the deacons. But I, <laughs> I think the church is, why is he talking about marriage up there? And another one, I, I, at the end of the service, and even though I wrote it out, I, I, I should have looked at my notes, but I didn't. I said, as I introduced the couple, I said, Mr. and Mr., you know. <laughs> And I saw the bride's mother, <laughs> and she almost didn't forgive me after that. On a couple more. One, one was with the rings. Now, guys, I've always asked the, the, groom, uh, the, uh, um, the best man, I've always asked him, now, do you have the ring? Or if they use a pillow, to make sure they're on the pillow. And sometimes they're just there for looks on the pillow. They, you know, the, 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 the groomsman, usually the best man has the ring for, the, uh, for, for the, his groom. And I asked him, you have your ring? Yeah. Well, I never had to ask the bridesmaid. I never had to ask the maid of honor. And in this particular wedding, I turned around to the young lady, and I reached for the ring, and she didn't have it. So I just acted like I took it from the palm of her hand and said something about the ring, gave it to the bride, and she acted like she put it on, and everything went just fine. And, uh, but it, up there, they were just, everybody was wondering why they were smiling, why there was a panic on their face. But uh, the last one is this. Like you have pews up here. This happened in Enterprise at Hillcrest. And we had had um, a getting ready for a musical. It was close to Easter. We were getting ready for a musical. And they had extended the platform. They had moved the pew uh, out of the very front. And uh, we had, had two aisles, you know, three sections and two aisles. And so that middle pew was, gone, uh, was out. 
Well, I had already performed the wedding of this young lady. It was Pam Henderson. And her dad was the biggest peanut farmer, biggest peanut farmer in Coffee County. And his wife was so prim and proper. I'd already been through their older daughter's uh, wedding, Sherry. But Pam, she was, she was such a delight. She was uh, bubbly, and, and she married Mike McQueen. Those of you who follow Alabama football, Mike McQueen played for Alabama and was one of the ones that carried the casket for Paul Bear Bryant. And all of his groomsmen played on the team, uh, played on the University of Alabama football team. So they're in the wedding, and they had a ball, the rehearsal, rehearsal dinner. And here we come to the wedding, prim and proper. We have a string quartet over here, and everything's going fine. And Pam comes down this aisle on this side. All of a sudden, she gets to the front pew, and she's walking, and her head goes just like that. She had this long, lacy veil. It caught on a stud, all right? caught on a stud where the pew was supposed to be and mama I could just see her dying all right Myra Henderson her name she was dying everything was supposed so perfect she's dying up there Pam head going back and everybody's wondering what's going on all right so we performed the wedding everything's just fine it is great and going out guess what happened they caught on the other stud (laughs) And then people finally caught on there was something going on. That's just a few, and there's, I, I'm sure some of you may have funnier ones than that. But weddings are a blessing. But to me, one of the best parts of a wedding is when I, John, take you, Mary, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live. Some of you may wonder, where did those vows come from? Well, they came out of the the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, and then the Protestant Episcopal Church, which is the American version of the Church of England, they copied it and codified it in 1789. And to this day, many of you said those vows, and many of you who will get married in the future, you will have an opportunity to repeat those vows if you so choose. But I wonder how many, and June is the month of marriage. My wife and I will have our 52nd anniversary here in just a few weeks in June. There are so many weddings, but I wonder how many got married yesterday, really understood those vows, really understood where they came from, what they mean, what they're supposed to mean. Did they really understand? I wonder how many weddings yesterday that they saw it kind of like the national anthem, all right? We got to play the national anthem. We got to get this ball game going, all right? So it starts with the national anthem. Then we can get to the game. I wonder how many people got married yesterday. And they said these vows, and it was just the preliminary. You know, it's something that you do legally. It's something you do religiously. And then we can get the party, you know? We can get to the reception. Then we can get on with, uh, with the rest of our life. I wonder how many people see it that way. Do they understand, not only as family and friends are present, do they understand that God is present at every wedding? You know what the word wedding means? Most of us don't even know what the word wedding means. It means to trade promises. To trade promises. So open your Bibles, and let's quickly look at Matthew chapter 19. And let's look at this most important passage it's repeated in a number of the gospel accounts but let's look at what Jesus had to say about marriage Christian marriage and the importance of it the first point I want to make as you're looking at the packet patches passage is to talk about is marriage 
A contract or a covenant? Is it a contract or a covenant? I'm afraid that many of us fail to see and understand marriage is actually a covenant that we are making with each other, husband and wife, with our family, and with God. We'll see more about that in a moment. Many people get married. All they see marriage is this contract. They feel like they're making a binding agreement. And what they're doing is they're striking a deal. And we know about deals, do we not? When, when we make a contract with someone, we're saying, I will do this if you do that. And then they have some escape clauses maybe that are in there. If you fail to do this, I'll stop doing that. There are a lot of people that see marriage just like that. They make a deal. After a while, it becomes an ordeal. And what they want is a new deal. And there are thousands of couples every year that have made a deal. It became an ordeal. They want a new deal. And so they find the escape clause, whatever it may be, and they get out of the relationship. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about marriage? Let's look in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now remember, the, he, Jesus is really popular at this time and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, they're just really upset about this. So it makes sense in verse 3, some of the Pharisees came to him testing him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They tested him. They were trying to trap him. They, they were doing whatever they could to make Jesus look bad in public. And, and they took a hot issue of the day and they put Jesus on the hot seat. Divorce was a hot issue, still a hot issue for us. But it was a hot issue during that day, and so they wanted Jesus to see what Jesus had to say about it. Now, the context of this is that when Jesus was doing this, and we'll see his response in just a moment, they had a division amongst the rabbis, very similar like we find ourselves in today. There were the conservatives and there were the liberals. So you had a conservative group of rabbis. And they said, the only reason you can divorce is only for adultery. And then you had another group of rabbis on the other side, the more liberal, and they said, well, you can divorce for any reason. Husbands, you can divorce your wife if your wife burns the toast. You know, if supper's not on the table at 5 o'clock, you can divorce her. And that's just as trivial as it was for the Jews of that particular time, that men could divorce their wives for just any, and any little excuse. And so here Jesus is speaking to that. He's in that kind of environment. So he says in verse 4, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female in verse 4? Haven't you read? He puts it back on them. He's actually asking them a question. Haven't you read about creation? How God made male and female? Don't you understand this is what God has done? And he puts it back on them to say, hey, don't you know what God has said? He is the one that, that created male and, female, male and female. He's the one that's created marriage. You don't have to worry about divorce. Don't even worry about divorce. You'll, you'll understand it more. If you understand marriage, you'll understand why he would be against divorce. And why you shouldn't even be in that place if you are following what God has to say. So here he is speaking, helping them to understand there's still a lot of confusion about marriage and understanding God's Word. Not just these Pharisees. We have it today. As many Christians, just as many Christians, get divorced as non-believers. 
And yet if we truly understood what God's Word had to say, we would take it more seriously and understand God's purpose, God's pattern, God's blueprint of how He wants us to live in relationships. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus had to say in this second point. Let's look at the essence of marriage. And what He does in the next six verses is that He's going to share uh, with us, and He shared with them, He's sharing with us today as the Spirit speaks to our hearts He's going to give us, in these six verses, five components, five ways of looking at this blueprint of what marriage is supposed to be all about. And it's going to be so different than our 21st century culture. In our culture today, people say marriage is an arrangement designed by us, for us, as long as we feel it's working. But that's not what Jesus said about marriage. So let's look at five statements from our scripture of what Jesus says about marriage. First of all, marriage is custom made by God. It's custom made by God. Again, verse 4. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? God is the one who's made us as we are. He made us male and female. And how He made us through creation has transcended all generations. It is, is, is transcended all of whatever you have find, find in culture around the world. People understand this is God's way. This is God's intent. And as he puts this together in marriage, we're to learn to live together. And we're to learn how to meet each other's needs as well. But the problem is this. In our sinfulness, we try to change what God intended in marriage. We, we, don't, we don't like the way God has done it, so what, what, what we have done, we've tried to redefine what marriage is in our culture today. And our culture says marriage is man and man can get married. Woman and woman can get married. And now we're saying that, hey, a man can marry multiple people, a woman can marry multiple people. Man and woman, they can marry animals, they can marry inanimate objects. You're finding this all across our country now, pushing the limits of this. And with transgenderism, it's only going to get worse. That's how our world, our culture is looking at it. But you and I, even if we didn't have God's word, we know it's unnatural. Common sense tells us it's unnatural. But we have God's word that reminds us this is the way God created us. Male and female that fit together in a special relationship. Let's look at the second point, And that is the mysterious uniting two into one. Mysteriously we're united two into one. Verse 5 he says, and for this reason. For what reason? For the reason that you've been created male and female for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. So here Jesus makes it clear in verse 5 and verse 6. We're becoming something. We're becoming one person. We're becoming one unit. We come together in this special union that God has ordained. And when we think of coming together, blending our lives, we think of intimacy. Yes, it's physical intimacy, but it's also emotional and it's spiritual, it's relational. God brings us together and forming us into one. This is his desire. This is his plan for us that as the years go by, that we begin to develop this oneness in our life. Yes, through the physical, consummated, 
but we begin to blend lives together. It's like two rivers that come together at a particular point. And down river, they're, they're still two different colors, but the longer they, those rivers flow together, they begin to integrate with one another, blend, and then becomes a whole new color of the water. So it is in a husband-wife relationship. As Arlinda and I married some 52 years ago, we were two different people, obviously, but we bl blended our lives together through the years. It's no longer what I think or my ideas or what she thinks or her ideas. It's now what we think, what our ideas are. We mysteriously have blended our lives together. When I do my premarital counseling, I often ask the couple, have you ever heard somebody say of a couple, you know, they kind of look like each other? Have you ever done that? I can tell from your, from your little laugh. You, you, you see a couple that have been together over the years, and you begin to think, well, they kind of look like each other. Well, physically, we know that that's, that that's not possible. Maybe the aging makes us more with our hair or whatever. But the point is this, we are together for so long, we have blended for so long, we look as one together after all these many years. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about blending in this mysterious way. Our culture has lost an understanding of the power of blending lives together. Now, number three, it's a solemn vow of allegiance. Let's go back to verse five once again. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. One preacher said it this way, they leave, they cleave, and they weave. All right? They leave, they cleave, and they weave. Well, we've talked about the weaving. That's the mysteriously uniting of two into one. But you leave. And that means that you now loosen, you relinquish. You're no longer part of the family uh, with authority and all of that under your, under your parents in a home. You leave that. You give that up. No, you still, uh, or yes, you still honor mom and dad, but no longer do they have authority or power over your life. You form a new family unit with your spouse, so you leave them and you unite with one another. That word unite, cleave, means to be glued together is to be bonding together, to adhere to one another. You now become one, yes, in physical intimacy, again, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, you become one. And the scripture tells us that to try to tear that apart is like tearing flesh apart. We'll speak more about that in a moment. But you become that one because you're cleaving with each other and you make a vow of allegiance toward each other. And you become that one. A few years ago, I had a, an older automobile. And my rearview mirror fell from the windshield. And upon examination, the, the little tab that was holding it had somehow lost the, the, the glue, the adherence to, to the windshield. And so I got some, I don't know if it was Gorilla Glue or Super Glue, but I took that little tab and I glued it back to the windshield, and then after I waited the period of time you're supposed to wait, I went to hook the rearview mirror. I found out I put that tab upside down. <laughs> and so I've, I've tried to find how I was going to be able to, you know, what kind of material, what substance could I put in there to dissolve that glue to get the tab off. 
I knew that if I took a screwdriver or, and tried to pry it, I, I probably would break the windshield. Well, I found some solution, and I worked and worked and worked and took a little screwdriver. Over a period of time, thank goodness, I didn't crack the windshield, and I fixed it. But it reminded me, that is what a marriage is supposed to be. We make a solemn vow of allegiance. We leave and we cleave, and we weave together. Remember a moment ago I said marriage is, a, is to be a covenant? Let me tell you, in the, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, I think I have it there in your notes for you. Genesis chapter 15, God wanted to assure Abraham of this unconditional covenant that he had with him. And so God had Abraham to sacrifice an animal, cut the animal in two, and separate it by a few feet. And then God would come down in a flaming torch and would walk between the divided animal. It was to symbolize this new covenant and that this pledge, a vow of allegiance, a covenant with Abraham. People would take that symbol, two people would make a covenant with each other. They would also sacrifice an animal and they would walk between the sacrifice those sacrifices, and it was their way of pledging that if they broke the covenant, they would be just like those animals, that they would forfeit their life. Do you know that has come into our wedding ceremony? That's come into our wedding ceremony. When a couple walks down this aisle, the bride's family's over here, the groom's family is over here, and they walk right between when they go out the church. And they walk between their families. Genesis 15 is played out in every wedding ceremony where a bride and groom walks between the family. And they're making a covenant with each other. They're making a covenant with God. They make a covenant with their family. And so it be for them. If they are breaking the covenant, the family is supposed to come and say, Hey, something's wrong here. Our friends are come and help intervene. And to keep God's judgment upon the marriage. We make a solemn vow to each other. It's a vow of allegiance. And we need to take seriously our vows and the pledges that we make to each other. Number four, I want you to see it's also a vow to God. And quickly we see over in Malachi, if you want to turn back, one book, the last book of the Old Testament. You'll find Malachi uh, chapter 2. Follow with me as I read verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Oh Lord Almighty. So be on guard and do, not, and do not be unfaithful. Here we find some strong words about that we're making a vow to God. You remember I asked the question and, and made a statement a while ago, where is God during the wedding? God's right there watching your wedding. You're making a vow to each other, you're making a vow to your family and before God. God's witnessing your marriage. He is present in your marriage. 
He is the one that's all about it. Go back to verse, verse 6, and we see in the, in the part of the last phrase, therefore what God has joined together. God is the one that joins you together. It's not the pastor. It's not the church. It's not the government. God is the one that joins you together. So we need to take our vows seriously because we're making them to God too. And that we will be faithful in those vows that we take. 1 Peter chapter 3, 7 reminds us, husbands, your prayers aren't hindered if you don't treat your wife as the precious gift that she is from God. Your prayers are unhindered. unhindered. Israel was unhindered. God wasn't accepting their worship because there was divorce in the land. And so he was, he was saying, hey, you, you, you've got a relationship that's not right. You need to get it right. You're not protecting those that you have made a vow to. And so in the same way, we make a vow to God. We're to be faithful to him in that vow. Now, lastly, for life. For life. Jesus says our relationship is to be a permanent relationship. Notice in the last part of verse 6. Therefore, what God had joined together, let no man separate. Let no man, let no one get in the way. First, you as a spouse don't get in the way of trying to separate your relationship with your wife, with your husband. Parents, do not get in the way of your children who have stood before you, before friends, and before God and made different. Don't you destroy their marriage. Don't you get in there and weasel your way in and still try to wield authority over that man or over that woman and destroy the marriage. It's wrong. The relationship is supposed to be for life. Look at verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Again, they're still probing. Why did Moses command? Notice Jesus' answer. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Notice Jesus didn't say Moses commanded. Moses never commanded divorce. He permitted divorce. And Jesus is picking up on that. He never commanded it. He permitted it. Why? Because of hard hearts. If our hearts were just softer, if our hearts were just softer, we'd be able to reconcile. Then verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus said there's only one reason, and that is for adultery. And then you don't have to, but you could reconcile. It's not automatic. Yes, it's hurt. There's pain. It, you have to work through it. You need counseling. You need people to come alongside of you. You need prayer. There will need to be time. But Arlinda and I can attest to families after families we've known through the years. That recommitted them before God and with the appropriate counseling and help were reconciled after adultery in the marriage. Yes, many go their ways because one would not forsake. I'm doing a wedding for a young lady whose husband would not agree to counseling, had multiple partners afterwards. Now is living with someone. And she finally, after nearly five years of working on it, yes, she has divorced him. God's brought her a wonderful godly man. But she tried and she did her best after a long period of time. Jesus, Jesus said, except for adultery. 
But then Paul adds, I have the scripture there, 1 Corinthians 7, for an unbelieving spouse, that could happen there too. Or for someone that is abusive in the relationship and refuses counseling. We could go on and on of those kind of little exceptions. But the bottom line is this, for the majority of us, it comes down to hard hearts. But that's not the emphasis here. While Jesus is answering these questions, the emphasis is not so much on on the divorce, but it's on the positive, what marriage is supposed to be. So let's look at this last point. This is kind of a bonus point for us this morning. I want you to see the purpose of marriage. Can I remind you there are basically four purposes for marriage? And the first one is this. It's for companionship. In Genesis chapter 2, God told, uh, told Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. Well, you need to understand just before that, we find Adam is naming the, naming the uh, animals. He's giving names to the animals as they're coming for him. And he sees all these male and females. All right, he sees all the, the dogs and the cats and the giraffes and the elephants and the horses, male and female. And he's seeing that they all have, have a partner, but he doesn't have a partner. And God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so what did God do? God performed a, you know, a miracle surgery. He took Adam, put him to sleep, took out a rib, and he formed woman with that rib. And then he brought her to Adam. And what did Adam say? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she came from man. No, that's not what he said. You know what the Hebrew says? Wow, I'm so excited. Thank you, God, for what you've given me. That's what the Hebrew says. There's excitement in that Hebrew phrase. No, he didn't come. Oh, thank you, God. No, he was excited because what God had done for him. Companionship. And that's the way it's supposed to be for us. We ought to be excited we have our wife, we have our husband, we're going through life together, we, we work together, we have our careers, we have our children, we have a home and we save for retirement and we enjoy some things in retirement. And so th there's a companionship. One counselor said it this way, the couple that will talk together, work together, play together, pray together, stay together, enjoy life, divorce is uncommon. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, I often use them in weddings. The two shall become one. It talks about the two. It talks about the fact that we do better when we're working together. Two are better than one. There's companionship. And the best marriages I have found are where there's real friendship. My wife and I were friends years before we dated. But there was real friendship. And then we share beliefs, core values in our life. That's what makes for a satisfying, wonderful marriage. Number two, sexual fulfillment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A husband is to share in meeting the needs of his wife. The wife is to share in meeting the needs of her husband. God has given us sexual intimacy for the joy of the marital union. And we are to understand this is a gift from God. And as a gift from God, we have responsibilities of pleasuring each other. We should not look at sex as a duty, but see it as an opportunity and a gift from God. And by the way, the Bible never blushes when it talks about sexual intimacy. 
It never blushes about that. Genesis chapter 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were naked. They said they were naked and they had no shame. In chapter 4 verse 1, Adam knew his wife. And then came the children. It is a gift of God, God's plan. And it is the safety net of marriage of which it's to be experienced. Number three, children. Apparently God's not uh, through with his creation. So he gave us an opportunity as husband and wives to bring children into the world. God still wants this world populated. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful, multiply, increase in number. Psalm uh, 127.3, children are a heritage of the Lord, meaning they are a gift from God. And we need to see that when we bring children to the world, we're fulfilling God's plan for this world, for God to accomplish His ministry. And lastly, stability. Stability. I said this earlier, God gave us marriage so that we would learn how to live together. We'll talk about this more with family. To live together and then to meet each other's needs. When we are in a marriage relationship, it is the first institution of God. It's how we learn to get along with each other and bring children into the world, help them to get along, and how to be productive citizens in a society. We're seeing that's not happening today. You understand that. Our culture is destroying the family unit. Satan is behind that. To destroy our witness, destroy the word of God, destroy the family unit. You break the family unit. Is what Satan is all about. And we're seeing it played out in our culture. And I want you to bow your heads. We have just a couple of minutes left. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. And I want you to think with me the takeaways. Think with me for the takeaways this morning. Dale Burke in his book entitled Different by Design speaks about this very thing, that marriage is a covenant, it's God's plan for success, but we need to make sure that our thinking is right. So let me give you quickly a couple of things to think about. When you think about Christian marriage, thank God. It is His idea, marriage, the relationship. Keep Him in the center of your marriage. God is to be our model. He is our mentor. Our God is the motivation. Then think team. Marriage is about a team. We win or lose together as a husband and wife. And I don't know about you, but I want my marriage to be a winner. So my wife and I work together so we win together. And if we lose, we lose together. And believe me, there are no winners in divorce. My wife and I made a decision long ago. We were in this together. And I was going to invest in my greatest asset. And that's my wife. And she invested in the greatest asset here on earth that she has. And that's her husband. By the way, before I leave this point, the Bible says to love your neighbor. Who's your closest neighbor? Your closest neighbor is your wife, your husband. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Think long term. Think long term. There's going to be ups and downs, just like the stock market. There's ups and downs. You don't bail out of the stock market. Don't bail out of your marriage. 
Think investment, small investment, sacrifices, deposits over a period of time consistently produce great dividends. So it is in a marriage. Invest in your marriage. And then lastly, think commitment. Commitment means going in the same direction for a long period of time. So think commitment. I'm going to end this for the long haul, for the long period of time. It will improve the quality. It enhances your relationship. This is what builds security, honesty, intimacy, and joy. This is God's blueprint. It's his word for Christian marriage. And I want to say this. There may be some here that have gone through a divorce. And our hearts go out for you. We do not judge. And we do not condemn. We don't know all the circumstances maybe you had to go through. God is a forgiving God. He's a healing God. So please know as God, as we raise the bar on marriage, we're not lowering criticism on anyone. But wherever you are right now, make the best of where you are. And with God's help, with good Christian men and women that can come alongside and give counsel, wherever you are in your marriage, our relationship in life. Let's hold God's standard up. Let's pray. Let God work on our hearts and bring conviction. Let him bring healing, but let him bring joy. That's why he created it for us, so we might have joy. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this reminder. Help us, Father, as we follow your will, your plan in this area, a most critical area. It's countercultural today, but we're going to stand on your word, for we know it is true, and bless us because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.